happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 186 for August 5th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Beautiful Missoula, Montana, and joining me as always. Good evening, Doctor Wes Fryer. Wes, how are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and we went back to school today, face to face. So we have seven days of professional development, and then the kids return on the fourteenth. So back to school, and I actually really enjoyed it a lot. And I've enjoyed remote, and I will be fine if if we, you know. Whatever amount were remote, I'll be fine. But uh, I really, really did enjoy it. And it's also lovely to not be in charge of all the technology at our school. So uh, I'm going to enjoy my, my new roles. So um, are you guys getting fires and the smoke, enjoying... I know that you're enjoying the air conditioning this year for I sure. I am enjoying the air conditioning. That's for sure true. Um, there are some fires in Montana. Uh, the first couple of them that started were pretty easily, well, I think they're in the process of being easily controlled. So um, it's been hot here. Uh, last Friday in particular was pretty gross. I think it got up to 99 that day, but that night um, it was uh, 1130 at night. I checked the temperature outside and it was still 84 degrees. And I was like, oh, that's too warm. But, um, you know, it's, it's not bad. We've had, I, I've, I've had Montana summers where, uh, the worst one, this was maybe 2007, 2008 when I was still in Helena, Montana. And we had a string where we had like 22 days above a hundred and just ugh, terrible, terrible, terrible. So I would say this summer is, is, is not too bad. And, um, you know, and again, I, you know, it's, I, less complaints now that I have, uh, central air in my home, which was, uh, should have been a trip to Italy, but it was not. So we're going to have to do what we got to do. But, um, enough about my air conditioning. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We're going to take a quick look at the headlines around the techosphere and kind of shoot them through an educational prism and see if there's maybe some interesting bits there for those in and around the education world. And there is a bit of breaking news tonight. It's kind of old, but still, I thought we'd start there tonight. I did not queue up our breaking news bumper, but you'll just have to trust that shagagagang is enough for the breaking news, right? But ISTE announced last week that their conference will go virtual. Uh, it is the last week of November into early December. And I was curious to talk to you about that tonight, Wes, in part because, uh, you know, I think both of us love going to ISTE, but it's not always a reality. Uh, it, it can be very expensive. It's oftentimes in a high-priced travel city. Um, I did put in what I thought was a really great presentation last year and was turned down for the uh, June 2020 ISTE conference. Um, and I know now that they're working with presenters to find out if they're interested in doing virtual. But I guess I'd start with the fact, um, will you attend ISTE online? Oh, without, without a doubt. You know, this, this was really, I think, my best and most enjoyable professional development summer ever. I don't know, maybe quantity wise. I mean, like, I, I love, of course, traveling and it's just great. I, I got to spend a week in Rhode Island last year for the, the digital, the, the summer institute on digital literacy. It was amazing. But I mean, being in the, in the mountain moot for Montana, I did this MSON Malone network, uh, virtual conference with folks that are, I mean, it's, you know, similar to, to mountain moot and that, 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 that group of just, you know, super experienced online blended distant learning people. It's amazing to, to be able to learn. I mean, we want to learn with professionals, right? And learn with folks who uh, are at the top of their game and, and know them a lot more than we do. And both of those experiences were that way. And then I did the, the Summer Institute of, on Digital Literacy. And, and there's no way I would have been able to do all of those. I was right. planning on just doing ISTE. But here's the weird thing, right? You have to put those proposals in so long in advance. And now it's going to be December. Like, I think they ought to just do another call for proposals. Right. Because what people are going to necessarily, I mean, I would, I would rather be doing something about conspiracies and culture wars. Honestly, I, I got a session accepted about middle school digital literacy and, and, and media literacy. So, you know, it'll be, it's still relevant. It'll be fine. 
But I mean, how many months are going to have passed by the time, you know, between when we wrote a proposal and, and when we give it. So anyway, I don't right. know how they're going to handle that, but I did email them back and click the link and say, yes, I will be excited to attend virtually. I wonder how they're going to handle, you know, numbers of, or sorry, pricing and things like that. You know, I would yeah. think do something, you know, obviously different than the whole it's because it's, it can be a, it's a pricey, pricey conference. It is. Yeah. And that's what prevents me from going. I mean, I've probably been, I, I'd say four or five times total. I love every time that I go, it's a real opportunity. Well, I mean, in part, I get to see folks like you, Wes, that, that I, I, I know well online, but I don't get that much of an opportunity to see face to face. There's a lot of important players there. And then something that, um, I know there's a lot of controversy every year because it's obviously uh, one of the major income sources for the conference itself is vendors. But I have to say, uh, conferences for me are about the people and the sessions, but they are also about strategic meetings with vendors. And um, the uh, uh, every time I go, I usually have four or five really good meetings uh, that with folks oftentimes in the higher ups of organizations that, that, that I purchase from. Um, I used to go to INACAL, which is the uh, uh, K-12 virtual learning conference. Uh, it is uh, uh, focused into different places now. So I instead go to the digital learning annual conference, which uh, was in Austin. It actually was, a, it was two weeks before the nation basically shut down. So it was my, um, uh, uh, and it was in the middle of NCCE when I, when, when things started really going down, but, uh, DLAC was great this year and it, it's an opportunity to sit down. I probably had at least three one-on-one 30 minute or more sessions with important people that I have business relationships with as part of my day job. Um, you know, and, and, uh, but that said, I didn't get a, a proposal accepted at ISTE this year. Uh, it made it a less persuasive, uh, pitch to my boss to go, um, my partner in crime at MTDA, Mike Agostinelli, did get a session um, in play. And so he ultimately uh, 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 successfully pitched to the boss to go. But then, of course, you know, broader factors prevailed. But I would say there's a really good chance that I'm going to uh, that I'm going to be able, even if the pricing is uh, maybe more than what it appears to be um, uh, uh, viable, we'll be able to be able to do that. Um couple quick thoughts about the virtual conference thing. Wes, I couldn't agree with you more that it, it, it's really a great opportunity. Uh, I think I'm going to try to go to the National Council for Social Studies conference this year, which will be online. There is really almost no uh, real pitch I could make for that. I mean, uh, uh, with travel costs involved, right? I, you know, I, I think I looked and it was a couple hundred dollars to, to register for the virtual conference. To be honest, that's a bargain. I'm going to get access to content I would never get access to otherwise. Um, I've reengaged in the last year and a half or so in my original love and education, which is the social studies. Um, but I wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. I'm probably going to get to go to ISTE because of that. Um, the one thing I would say that is a bit of a challenge for me personally, and I'm almost certain this is true of, of all others, is that it's, it is hard if you're like, you have to really make the commitment to go to the sessions, right? Because if your day job starts to fire up, uh, like mine does, uh, and I work, you know, I have a full year position, you know, I, in fact, there's a free conference right now that is about OER and social studies that, uh, I started yesterday is going through to tomorrow, or I'm sorry, going through Friday. And I literally just didn't get a chance to drop in on it today because my day job, uh, kind of sucked my attention away. So, one of the things I'm going to do is that if I'm going to, you know, uh, especially pay money to attend these conferences, conferences virtually, I'm going to very much, you know, shut off my email, um, you know, turn off the the help desk software, get rid of, of work chat and, and just focus on the conference. But, yeah, super interesting. And we'll have to see how that plays out. And then the other thought I have is that that's it's a big conference and it could be a mega big conference, right? Like without the travel cost involved, I could see, and I think 20,000, 25,000 participants, I think is the number that, that usually attend. Right. Uh, it wouldn't be that totally out of uh, 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 believability that they could get 30, 35, 40,000 people involved. And I remember when it was in DC and uh, 
there were so many extra devices on DC networks because here's all, you know, these teacher nerds uh, showing up with their four, oh uh, you know, their four uh, 4G devices, right? Their iPad, uh, their cell phone, their second cell phone, and towers are going down all over DC because they can't handle the traffic. And that's in DC, right? I could see that they will, whatever they decide to do from a technology platform standpoint, um, you know, they'll figure it out, but they'll really show, I think, how to, to offer a large conference online at scale. Well, that reminds me of the mobile learning experience that Tony Vincent um, put together along with the wonderful Arizona K-20 or K-12 Center. Shout out to them. Shout out to Peggy, who's out there in Arizona Phoenix land. And we've got a couple other live viewers. So hello, everybody. Hello, mom, if you're there. Um, I, I, well, and then Felix Giacomino, I think, too, with Miami Device. But definitely, I mean, the first year they did, my, they did the uh, mobile learning experience, and this has been a few years back, I mean, they just overwhelmed the hotel in terms of their capabilities. And so the next year, you know, Tony had told me that there, there was a special company that they had contracted with, and I think they put special, you know, either satellite or microwave, some kind of, you know, of, of towers, you know, up on the um, the, the hotel to just really augment the bandwidth and, and it was robust, but you know, that was sort of back in the day. I mean, now with our smartwatches and, you yeah. know, tablet phone, I mean, yeah, typically people are probably traveling with three to four easily three to four different devices. Now, if you are, uh, in the Knifer household, I think you generally just sort of walk around with at least 10, you know, different devices and you just, you know, you see those those shows like Men in Black where they've got all the weapons. I mean, you know, Jason has literally, you know, Pelican cases just with row upon row just to, to be able to, you know, Chromebook, uh, Windows, Windows 8, Windows 10, you know, he can he can just pull it out on demand. But seriously, it we're in a different day. And by the way, this is taxing our school networks. You know, we have just had a completely a complete. <clears throat> Network refresh, which is still ongoing, but we had a successful um, opening. We, we have chapel uh, to open our, our school year, and then we had an opening meeting with all faculty on Zoom, and everyone was in their rooms. And from what I saw, it worked beautifully. Um, but uh, you know, we've it'll be interesting if we go to conferences where they start limiting you. You know, I've noticed that some hotels uh, you'll only get like two devices. They'll give yeah. you a code and say, you know, this will this will get you know two things on, but you're not gonna you're not going to get all your devices on. So anyway, it's kind of a sign, sign of the times. Yep, absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, we'll see, right? Uh, a lot of time between now and then. I will say that there's uh, uh, some other uh, regionally based, Montana-based stuff that I'll probably attend in the coming months. And I am interested. I'm, I'm on some, you know, kind of secondhand planning committees in regards to a few of those. And there's really interesting conversations going on. I will never diminish the power of face-to-face -face, uh, engagement, but it's also in, in, in for my view, not wholly unreasonable, but we might be able to have more virtual opportunities that could really provide more access for folks. I think the fact that a lot of the best training does end up happening at you know, with face-to-face -face travel involved can be very limiting. And also, I think it becomes a real equity issue in regards to lots of school districts can't afford to send teachers to ISTE. Um, I uh, had a friend uh, in Montana that was in a district that basically you get one national conference in your career. And she chose to go to ISTE and super great. And, you know, she had the opportunity to go. But, um, you know, that's a, you know, I, I will say my first ISTE was, was 2006 in San Diego. Uh, my first time in San Diego, actually, which was uh, uh, stunning and wonderful. But I, I can legitimately say that I'm sitting where I am today. Uh, much to do in part with the influence I had talking to vendors. Um, I learned a lot about open source software. I learned a ton about podcasting. Um, all themes that reoccurred over and over again, both in my classroom and as, as I took this administrative job, have certainly impacted me then. And so, you know, maybe there's an opportunity. Like I would, I would hate for Mountain Moot and 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 certainly West when they go back face to face again. You will love that conference. One of the best small conferences uh, uh, in the nation. I. Think Think, but which, uh, by the way, I love. I think those kinds of small conferences now are the best. I mean, yep. ISTE is a different feel, but for me, the the relationships, the connections, and the learning that kind of conference that's that's what the mobile learning experience was like. Miami Device; th those are some yep. of my best and favorite 
uh, events. And by the way, for anybody who's listening, this means this is good news, right? Because, I mean, it, it takes quite a bit to put some put put these events on, but it's not like in order to have a great learning experience, you've got to get to some crazy scale. I really, I mean, it's about who's in the room, right? And how you right. how you bring those people together, but. Yeah, absolutely. Small, small conferences like that have a special sauce, a special magic. They can. And you all have such a great tribe, you know, around Moodle and it's expanded as well. But anyway, it's uh, it's fantastic. I'm excited. I mean, mobile learning isn't happening anymore. Miami device shifted. It's called sh- uh, shifted and EDU uh, shifted shift EDU, I think. Uh, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, these things go in seasons. And I'm glad that to have discovered the mountain moot. And I I can't wait till we have a vaccine and I can return. So maybe in a couple of years, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think uh, the a lot of my, my travel savvy friends are starting to get super antsy. And, and I am too. Travel is really what my, my passion is. And the, the bottom line is, is that it's, it's going to be a long time before I'm going to be able to travel as freely as I did pre-pandemic. But conference travel will return. I'm glad we can find ways to connect and share uh, despite that. So... Okay, well, that news passed. Uh, I thought maybe, and it looks like you've got several articles tonight, Wes, that are related to this as well, some pandemic-related news and not necessarily the pandemic itself. I would start with just a quick cautionary tale. Um, They have arrested uh, some folks related to the Twitter hacks from a couple weeks back. One of them is a 17-year-old student in Florida. Uh, I just only mention this because if you're still not doing this, it's time to add some security to your Zoom meetings, but uh, the kid's arraignment was Zoom, was Zoom-based, and it w- there was no password on it, and obviously a high-profile case, the information got out, and a bunch of people Zoom-bombed uh, with some inappropriate content, is the way I will state it on this family-friendly podcast. So, uh, unfortunately, it, it's another cautionary tale. If you're not figuring out ways to lock down your video conferencing solution for when kids come back to your building and you attempt to... Re- either uh, engage in distance learning or then move to remote teaching because of building closures, please remember everyone needs to know how to lock down your video conferencing room. Uh, then also, I wanted to note uh, interesting a uh, couple interesting articles that are kind of technology related related to uh, COVID nineteen. First, uh, Virginia is going to roll out their statewide smartphone app related to kind of automated contact tracing, so that if you end up getting exposed to someone that positively tests for COVID nineteen, it will let you know that you've been exposed to someone. So, in other words. Uh, uh, it, it keeps track of various blue, I think it's Bluetooth based technology. It's not, uh, uh, GPS based technology. It's if you're near someone with, uh, low power Bluetooth, uh, kind of like they do in, in like shopping malls and large department stores and ballparks where they use low energy Bluetooth to help track the movement of people. They're going to use that technology. Both Apple and Google are in on it and the Virginia app will be the first state that utilizes that technology. And I I have to say, from what I've read, I I was a little leery about this earlier in the year, even though I thought it was a necessary technology. But the way that I'm reading the rollout of the technology, it's, it's, it's pretty slick. And I think there's also a lot of very important privacy-based protections. Like, for example, it's not just keeping a huge database of uh, your locations that you've been. Instead, it's really making your proximity to people that then ultimately test positive with COVID the, the primary method of detecting you know, uh, kind of an automated contact tracing piece. And so that is technology to take a look at. Um, and Wes, I know we've talked about this in past weeks, but would you have any qualms about installing such an app on your phone? I don't think so. I think that if we're going to get a handle on this, we're going to, we're going to have to do things like that. And unfortunately, part of the sad, the sad trombone of the United States and the coronavirus right now is we're simply not taking and haven't taken the effective steps necessary to get this thing under control. Our numbers are spiraling out of control. We just, I mean, yes, I didn't see numbers today, but yesterday's in Oklahoma, we're setting a record. We're not Florida, but uh, I even heard about Montana, I think, as far as, yeah. as some numbers going up. So anyway, yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, come on, people are, People are being kind of ridiculous about masks and personal freedom and how this is just such a an imposition on them. And um, 
I just, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. So yep. we, we are probably not going to see widespread adoption of those kinds of apps. And that's going to cause us to have a more prolonged encounter with the coronavirus. So, yep, absolutely. And then I want to point out one other article that I really enjoyed reading, um, uh, the last couple of days that talks a little bit about Google's approach to remote work. And one of the things that I, I think is interesting about this, uh, there's a rash of, of, of books coming out. Uh, I noticed one today was pitched by a friend I have on Facebook. Um, it's, uh, um, uh, it was like a, a user's guide to distance learning. It's unfortunate because Mike, my, my, uh, partner crime at MTDA, Mike and I had thought about pitching a, um, a book treatment to actually to ISTE to start off with uh, about distance learning and other projects kind of got in the way and we, we never finished up the, the outline, but unfortunate because it would have been really useful, I think, uh, in 2020, but there, there is a lot of materials coming out. But I think that if you are really, if you're, if you're, if you're all remote, or if you are, for example, if your district standing up a distance learning program um, to be available to students in addition to face-to-face -face environments, um, there are a lot of interesting articles about how corporate environments are handling remote work. And the one that really stuck with me recently was this uh, Inc. article um, from, I think it was from two or three days ago, but uh, Google's remote work policy has nine great tips you should definitely steal today. And... I read through this and it was all, it was all true, right? Like my experience having remote worked, uh, uh, on my own for a number of years early in my digital academy days. And then obviously since, uh, I've been home since March 12th and, and remote work since that time. And to be honest, I don't see a time in the foreseeable future where I will be uh, in the office with my entire team again for a while. But, um, I, I thought these tips were, were, were pretty interesting because if I were engaged as a team, teacher during this time, and especially if it was my full-time job to be, you know, a remote teacher or if, if I was part of a distance learning program in my district, I think all these are really also important for coming up with like a class culture or class environment. So uh, team meetings need to be a priority, uh, which I couldn't agree with more. We have one a week uh, uh, at MTDA. It's on Friday mornings, and we also... As it turns out, a meet with subparts of our team at least once a week, and and that was something that was kind of practiced before the pandemic, but now it's become a kind of a critical lifeline for us. Showing personal interest in your colleagues, uh, so in this case, your students, and allowing students to connect with each other, um, even if it means that you're not always on task uh, during live meetings with your students, I think that is pretty important. Uh, Presence is, is pretty important, including keeping cameras on, uh, keeping your Microsoft uh, microphone off so that uh, you don't distract uh, others that, that may be engaging in the room. Verbal cues, nods, which I'm kind of a nodder. I tend to nod a lot during conversations, but I think that's a, a part of it. Uh, checking in with each other, recognizing your teammates, uh, giving compliments, uh, being careful and thoughtful about criticism, inviting participation, setting norms. Uh, using the right medium for the job and then making well-being a priority. And you're going to start to see more and more articles about how corporate America is dealing with remote work. And I know Microsoft has announced their remote through next year. Google has announced the remote through next year. The social media companies have announced the remote through next year. Uh, Silicon Valley is turning into kind of a ghost town because a lot of that work uh, was able to be easily relocated home. So keep an eye on that because what's happening in corporate America could be a good laboratory for also making a good responsive online classroom. And that headline is subtitled, um, basically, an, uh, they provide a lesson in emotional intelligence. Yeah. So I enjoyed the, at the Mountain Moot, you know, discussion about social presence and, and consistently in every, um, online workshop and conference talking about relationship and the investment that we need to make in, uh, in emotional check-ins and, and the, these yeah. aspects that it's just, this isn't just about sit down and get to work or just start delivering information. Uh, you know, it, it is about relationship and check-in and, uh, wellness, you know, which we've been, we've talked yeah. about that quite a bit on the show. So yeah, that's, 
that's great. And we need to keep those things in mind as we have an opportunity to lead video conferences, whether that's for our students or whether that's with other kinds of teams. Um, we need to do those kinds of check-ins. And that's something I know Peggy will remember this with the K-12 online conference with the organizer meetings that we would have. Uh, and, and it just kind of evolved over time. But I, I really like for us to, you know, do some kind of a check-in, some kind of a share. And then sometimes we would end with that too, uh, which is just sort of like a question of the day or whatever. But it seems cheesy. But, but you know, you learn things about people and sometimes you laugh and you make connections. And those are important things. And then sometimes, you know, people share something uh, that's, that's significant that's going on in their life. And, you know, it, it just builds the team and it's important. So glad to see those kinds of recommendations coming. And it's just another sign of what we've talked about. Like this pandemic is changing a lot of things and there are going to be things that won't be the same ever. Um, but on, on, and to back to your point about the virtual conference, wouldn't it be great for ISTE to really make a serious play in, in the virtual space? Um, you know, I know that it can be a boat show and, and that's a David or a Gary Steger thing about, about the vendor hall and whatnot. But like, if we think about teachers and how important it is to be able to have access to innovative ideas and to thought leaders and to practical tips and all these sorts of things, um, I think it's going to be a fantastic opportunity and it may be the best ISTE ever. I love to be able to go to, to neat places and, you know, Anaheim, which is where the conference was going to be. And mm -hmm. one time we went out to San Diego as well. I mean, we got to go on that uh, aircraft carrier, you know, with our kids and hear, heard a World War II naval ace tell stories. I mean, we had experiences that were fantastic, right? But um, we can certainly reach more teachers and have a greater impact on the classroom if we look at what we can do virtually than you know, what we can do if we make everybody, you know, fork out hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a face-to-face -face trip. Yep. Okay, Wes, you have a couple of COVID articles to share. I do. Uh, let me go back first to your um, uh, hacker, the, the teen hacker article. Um, th that was, I hadn't heard of that about the Zoom bombing. Good grief. Um, the article I read and put in the show notes is from August 2nd, and it's called From Minecraft Tricks to Twitter Hack, a Florida Teen's Troubled Online Path. And this is a very fascinating article um, about, you know, this reminds me of the the Mirai Botnet uh, hack that happened a couple years ago. We talked about these were a, um, one of them was a kid in Alaska. They were both pretty young that had spun up a Minecraft hosting business. And in order to try and get at their competitors, they developed a way in which they could access, you know, surveillance cameras and other Internet of Things devices. And it became so big and effective, they got scared. They put it out on the dark web. Um, and then it it led to the, the biggest denial of service attacks that we've ever seen before on the web. And, uh, you know, Brian Krebs, our, you know, uh, website and other places were were taken down. And anyway, this reminds me of it. And one of the things to, to bring it back, you know, kind of to the classroom and the school perspective, how are we engaging our kids that are the most tech savvy? Right. Uh, yeah. We were talking today about Minecraft. I was t we had a computer science department meeting, which was just wonderful. We have um, had a, a transition and, and, and we have a new upper division um you know, computer science teacher, and we we had you know high school, middle school, and, and our elementary that we call lower school. And we were talking, you know, if we go remote clubs, and and I shared a little bit about my Minecraft experiences this summer. It is just fantastic to be able to work with kids and give them this constructive channel to be able to create and to be able to facilitate and lead and and develop their tech skills and teach others and just man, just completely you know, blow up whatever lesson plan you thought you could do uh, as far as helping them, I guess, in, in this was in Minecraft, but learn, it, it makes me think about that. So um, I'm not saying that we're all going to explicitly enlist kids that are that are hackers or script kiddies into being white hat hackers. Some schools do, you know, to say, hey, help us identify vulnerabilities, guys. Help us to, you know, make our network more secure. That does happen, and that's a possibility. But even if we're just finding other ways to help students be able to channel their skills and find positive and constructive ways at the Mountain Mood, I made a great connection with several Several educators, one that's in San Antonio, 
uh, that's really involved in doing a lot of, of coding and um, they're not really hackathons, but a lot of them orient kids to the intelligence community and the kinds of training that's available. And then there was a person who actually is in charge of training for all different military divisions, a six month program in cybersecurity. Um, and I think he's in Pensacola, Florida. Anyway, it was great to make these connections. That was just in a conversation we had after the at the end of the conference. Um, but we need to be, you know, getting our students aware of these possibilities because the the landscape of warfare. I'm still reading this book called Like War, and the cyber domain. I, in fact, I probably have a book right behind. I've got all these old books that I never got rid of, you know, for college. So, wow, what year would this have been published? I bet this was like in the 1980s. So this is called, if I can even find the, the published the publication year, 1986, War in the Third Dimension, 1986. I mean, we talk about air and land and sea, but now we have space, okay, and now there's cyber. So it's war in five dimensions. And, you know, I think a lot of civilians would like to not think about themselves being involved in war and conflict. Hey, the fact is the Internet and the Web has become weaponized. And it is not just about, you know, advertising for, for corporations. It's about politics and it's about all kinds of groups that want to do all kinds of things. And so Anyway, in that landscape, we need to help think think about how our students are going to play constructive roles and the ways they're developing skills. And this is is a kind of this New York Times article is a cautionary tale of saying, wow, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of dark alleys that are out there on the Internet and a lot of ways that students can be doing very destructive things. And that, but the opposite of that is going to be true too. There's a lot of very constructive things that they can do as well. So, um, the other article that I put, um, I guess I put a couple of them. Here's a, hey, let's do a positive one. Okay. Psychology Today, August 3rd. Survey reveals children coped well with school closure. <laughs> so a lot of times we're going to hear, you know, just lots and lots of, of doom and gloom negative articles and there are these issues as far as gaps and you know whether students are going to be you know handicapped or or severely um impacted you know by the fact that that they're you know in remote learning and then they're not seeing their their teachers face to face those and those things are real concerns um but i thought this was interesting and this was a psychology today article and it basically is saying that you know um while students did miss out on a lot and we heard about the dire predictions um, there are some uh, study, a, a survey, you know, that was a parent questionnaire and um, there's also a child questionnaire and uh, there, are, there was about a thousand, well, 798 parent forms, 762. And uh, overall, you know, children's psychological well-being seemed to improve after the school closure. And probably some of us have experienced this kind of thing where we slowed down. We weren't as involved in activities. Um, we ended up connecting maybe a little more with family members and we found some valuable things to do. So it's not all doom and gloom out there. So let me just throw that question to you, Jason. Not that that's a tech news thing. What is one of the number one things that you and your wife maybe have done or changed with your schedule as you all have found yourself not able to go to Iceland and, and do other things? Is there anything that stands out as something that was, uh, uh, you know, a positive or a change in your in your own uh, life that was COVID inspired. Um, well, air conditioning yeah, would be on that list. It was pretty important. Um, well, I obviously we were working. Well, part of it's working on our house, right? Like this is a we we bought our home in 2015. We bought it in the middle of kind of my life health crisis. We bought it uh, three months before I received my kidney transplant in 2015. Three months later, we took off for, for seven weeks to live in Seattle to go through that process. And we weren't super happy with, with the house after we got back. And we didn't see some stuff we probably should have saw and, and, and yada, yada, yada. But we've been really working on, you know, when this process actually started well before COVID started, but we're trying to make this house be the place we want to hang out in for a while. And, and I got to say, I, without getting too sappy, I mean, my wife is, is taking on a lot here. I mean, this is, if she, she is a, uh, very healthy woman and would be able, I think, to do many, many more social activities uh, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I wasn't 
um, kind of so at risk here of, of picking up uh, the virus. But, you know, I think part of it is that at least for 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 me, it's uh, uh, not giving up on planning for the future. We're trying to keep our house uh, tidy and uh, functional. We have a puppy that helps a lot. He's a year, year and a half old now. So he's not, he's still more just kind of a, a big clunky adolescent, but uh, uh, he's fun. And, you know, we are getting out quite a bit. My wife encourages me quite frequently to, to leave the house, even if it's just to get in the car and drive around town for a while. Uh, I think that that's pretty important, but I think staying connected to family and loved ones um, and, you know, being, um, uh, I guess for a, a lack of be- lack of better way of putting it, uh, kind of mindful of each other, I think has been pretty important. And then advice she gave me early on that uh, has ended up being super important. Uh, you know, for the last many years, I've always kind of want to put together the perfect home office. Like I like working at home and I've got, you know, a ton of side projects and, and I like working on the computer and I like being in an office space. And she said, you know, this is going to last a while. Don't worry about how much it costs. Just make the office of your dreams. So I did. And it ended up that I you know, took that advice and uh, I was going to buy a standing desk and look at all the super fancy ones. I ended up settling for something that I think was ended up being way better. It's a workbench uh, intended for a garage from Home Depot that has a crank on it that you can raise and lower. And I've got it in an L shape now. I've been working on that. And I think making sure your space is functional and that you know, you're not compromising by being at home. You know, I have a wonderful office at work. I'm never going to be able to reproduce the view and the coffee shop downstairs and all the things I love about work. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to make sure that it's as accessible as it can be. So a couple more articles under that same headline. Um, Wow. This is today. BuzzFeed, August 5th. The truth behind a viral picture of a reopening school is worse than it looked. Now, of course, this is coming from BuzzFeed, which tends to have some clickbaity headlines. And, you know, it's not the New York Times. But this article or this photo went viral today of a school in North Georgia. It is in uh, North. Let's see. Uh, North Paulding High School, and it just shows, you know, kids as packed as they possibly could be, and, you know, there's probably 50 kids in the picture, and I think three of them have on a mask. Uh, but here's the thing that, I mean, there's a lot of things that are sad about this in terms of, and this is bigger than just the school, the way that Georgia has rushed to uh, reopen, um, and I have a technology connection to this too, by the way. Um, they threatened the kids whose parents were saying they, they didn't want to go back to school, that they'd be suspended or expelled if they didn't come back face to face. At the end, the last piece of the article um, quotes a couple people familiar with the situation. I'll just go ahead and read it. On Wednesday, the school addressed the controversy that had swirled around the viral photograph written uh, uh, via an intercom announcement from North Paulding High School principal Gabe Camarna Carmona. In it, according to two people familiar with the situation, he, the principal, stated that any student found criticizing the school on social media could face disciplinary consequences. Uh, that's ridiculous. That's illegal. Okay, kid. I think it's the Tinker case. It's one of the things I remember vividly from my school law class that I took as part of my master's program. Students don't give up their their free expression rights when they enter the schoolhouse door. Um, they can't be disrupting the educational process, and the school has powers to, uh, you know, obviously maintain de- decorum and the function of the school, and, and it's not a free-for-all. But neither is it in a, a situation where a principal can legally get on the intercom and say, if any of you criticize me or this school, then I'm going to put the hammer down and, and you know, discipline you. Ah, you know, violation of the law. So I would expect that that will probably be pointed out to said principal. But there are um, there are some real positives in terms of social media. We've seen this with the the George Floyd, you know, protests and his murder and all of that, that thankfully it was documented on social media. Right. If we didn't have the video of that, um I don't know if the the policemen who were responsible for his death would have been, you know, arrested and fired and brought, you know, charged and all of those kinds of things. So I am not saying that we should be having students taking out their phones and recording everything. But what I am saying is there are things that happen that shouldn't happen that need to be held, you know, for an account. 
And these do pose challenges for leaders, right? Leaders would rather not have controversy. And, you know, there's almost every year, it seems like we have a fight video from a local school that, you know, is just is terrible. But like that actually is showing something that's happening in the school, too. So anyway, I'm sure none of that ever happens in Montana. You guys have a good lid on everything. And social media is just really not even a disruptive um you know, blip on the radar screen there. Um, uh, sadly, social media has made to Montana and kids in particular have access to it. And yeah, I, you know, it's, it, it, it's a familiar theme. If you've listened to our podcast in the past, that the bottom line is, is that, you know, having zero barrier to publish universally comes with challenges, right? And that's part of why I, I, I do absolutely believe that we have to have these conversations in schools and invite these technologies in schools because otherwise there's just no modeling that goes on that I think is positive. And um, I was part of an effort to kind of train students directly. Uh, this was in uh, 2007, 8, uh, uh, realm that I used to be part of. A, uh, it's a very long story what it was, but I put on, on hour-long workshops during a day in the spring where I would talk about about kind of social media savvy and safety and uh, the term digital footprint, which I know, Wes, you yourself have used a lot in a professional context. But, um, you know, I, I think you have to have those conversations openly. And then, you know, I, I also think that I just guess purely from working with adolescents, like if your initial inclination is to ban, 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 and, uh, you know, and especially I, I just I don't know how you punish kids for speech outside of campus, right? Like social media is not on your campus. It's one thing if they're hanging up a poster in plain view, but if you're, you know, of strong opinion, uh, you don't give up, you know, those rights at the schoolhouse door, especially for your off-campus actions. And yeah, uh, that uh, that's an important piece of that. And, and having been a student journalism advisor myself, uh, that's uh, uh, even true of official channels. But, you know, there is a lot of... Uh, uh, there's a lot of issues there, but it's not just about, um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, um, uh, uh, shutting off avenues. There's a responsibility we have to teach the students about how this works appropriately and correctly. I promise this is my last coronavirus related article and I am seeing it's like 45 minutes past the hour. So here we're going to spend another session. It, maybe the coronavirus is a big deal. You know, we're <laughs> Uh, this one is uh, local. So Norman Public Schools on Sunday, August 2nd is the date of the article, announced fully virtual start to the school year. Um, like many districts, Norman, which is one of our uh, large you know, suburban districts, it's south of us. It's where the University of Oklahoma is located. They had announced a hybrid plan. Parents could opt into an online option. Um, they were going to go back face to face. And they announced until few further notice, we're going to be virtual. And um, there were actually some protests that were organized that were called off because, you know, teachers uh, and parents in some cases, you know, really concerned about teachers. So Oklahoma City, our largest district in our metro area, is uh, rolled back their start date to the end of August. And they've said for the first nine weeks that they're going to be virtual. Um, I didn't put this article in the show notes, but there was a really good Atlantic article. I think I shared on Facebook a couple of days ago where, you know, some some uh, medical professionals were were basically saying, it, were, it reminds me of the X-Files, I want to believe. Their point was, there's no way that schools, you know, particularly when you have this uptick in numbers that we're having right now, but even without that, the, the coronavirus is, is so contagious that their point is, there's we're just kidding ourselves. There's no way they're saying that schools can safely reopen uh, broadly. So it will be interesting. We are planning for our students to be coming back a week from Friday on August 14th. And, um, you know, I had my HEPA 13 filter on today in my classroom and my mask was on most of the day. And it is uh, it is going to be interesting to see what happens. But I would like I'd love to see a map. And I don't know if you guys are doing something like that in Montana, you know, just kind of color coding, showing what are the districts doing? How many are virtual, you know, 100 percent virtual? Um, who's still doing hybrid? Um, and I'll say this. I think our school has done absolutely everything imaginable and possible. Uh, you know, we're not doing the infrared cameras, right? Those are super expensive. The ones that take your temperature which yeah. talk about surveillance, maybe that, you know, would make feel people feel creepy. They're also real expensive. 
Um, and we're all, we also have an installed, you know, absolute state of the art push one button. You can video conference live from, from every room. But, uh, anyway, it's going to be interesting to see because obviously there's a lot of, a lot of schools that don't have very many resources and extra resources to be able to fully, you know, get ready. And that's something that article about the Georgia school, that's what they said, uh, that they, you know, wouldn't be able to reasonably social distance kids definitely in the hallway and in other situations. And, you know, we've got the Edmond schools to our North who are doing a two, two on uh, three off plan where kids are going to go to school Tuesday, like either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday's a deep cleaning day for the whole district. And then the other half of kids are going on Thursday, Friday, and they're just doing that because they can't socially distance with the numbers that they have any other way. So, right. Yeah. Interesting times. Yep. We shall see. And then one other just note to that, uh, part of the reason why I don't think any district in Montana has announced starting remote only in part because our cases are, they're trending up. But it's also a long time until most schools start. So I think a few schools start uh, like the third week of August in northeastern Montana. Um, it's, a, it's a regional thing in Montana. We don't have a statewide calendar or anything. And we have some schools that start mid-August. We have some schools that go through to, to late June. So it's a pretty diverse calendar here. But... You know, it's it's a long time uh, in 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 my view until August, you know, twenty whatever. My guess is some schools are starting the the twenty first, some schools are starting thirty first in August. That's a long time from now. And if cases are trending upwards, I think a lot of districts probably will choose to start remote and see what happens. So yeah, there it is, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, man, there's a lot of lot of headlines. Um, Real quickly, let's mention the Microsoft one. I put this under social media. TechCrunch, August 2nd. Microsoft pursuing TikTok purchase by September 15th may invite U.S. investors to deal. So if you haven't been following this, um, our chief executive in the United States is, of course, very uh, angry with China and uh, has threatened to block the TikTok app, which I think might mobilize young voters against him more than any other decision that, that he could possibly do. But um, I saw a funny tweet the other day that said, hey, if uh, tick, if Microsoft buys TikTok and it goes the way of Skype, you know, say bye bye, say bye bye to TikTok, which I mean, Skype isn't dead, but it, it certainly I don't think thrived, you know, with the Microsoft purchase. But anyway, super interesting. And I think they were looking at buying it in three different countries. Um, and again, this this ties into stuff we've talked about on the show with 5G and and the whole security concerns in terms of China, United States and um, the, the build out of that 5G network. And so that will be interesting to see if that happens. And, you know, TikTok, if you're not, this is something to talk with your students about. Right. If they're middle school and above, um, maybe you've got younger students that are that are on. But the number of kids that are on TikTok watching TikTok and the virality of that is uh, pretty astounding. So it'll be interesting. Do you do you have a prediction in the possible TikTok purchase um, scenario, uh, Jason? And, and what where is your money? I know that you were an early investor in TikTok, I think, to maybe the tune of six figures. <laughs> So you've got a financial stake in this and you just want to have full disclosure for everybody so they know kind of where you're coming from with this. Yeah, I'm a pretty savvy investor. Um, so uh, I, I think Microsoft's going to make a play for it. I mean, the, all these headlines saying that, you know, Microsoft is, is making this attempt to be relevant and cool. Uh, n- n- Microsoft's never going to be cool. They they The cool ship sailed long ago for Microsoft. You know, that said, I, you know, I, I do want to be super clear that I think they've made incredibly savvy movements in the last five years to become relevant. They're just never going to be cool. But, uh, you know, they, they've done a good job as a steward of LinkedIn. Um, a lot of folks, I think, had a, I think a legitimate worry that it would become a, an overly Microsoft branded product. It would then lose its cat, its cachet as the place to go for, you know, professional social networking. And they kept it largely the same. In fact, if anything, the improvements uh, on LinkedIn in, in, in the past few years under Microsoft's ownership have been true improvements, right? Like improvements to the platform. So yeah, I, I would guess that Microsoft's going to make a play for it. I think they have the cash to make a pretty attractive offer to those that are selling. Um, 
I would also agree with your analysis that I think politically it is a terrible idea to ban TikTok uh, as an executive action, right? And I, I'm obviously not privy to the internal intelligence about how critical this is. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think. I guess I don't know how to put this. I don't think people's personal data in the TikTok variety, having that be accessible to the Chinese government. And there's been some extremely vague accusations about TikTok uh, regarding that, that that is a national security issue. Um, now, that said, I know that a lot of Fortune 500 companies have banned TikTok on corporate-owned devices. I think we had that story a couple of weeks back. Wells Fargo, I think, was one. Um, the military has banned TikTok um, on uh, military-owned phones and suggests that you don't log into your uh, military accounts on the same phone as TikTok. That's something, right? There's smoke there enough to suggest that there may be a flame elsewhere. But um, I, you know, I, I think it's a it's it's a bizarre strategy to say as an executive order you would ban ban that app. Now that said, it's been a real unique opportunity for me. I haven't been on TikTok since it first came out a couple of years ago. My my niece Madison, who then was a middle schooler and it's now going off to college this fall. They grew up so quick. Um, she introduced me to TikTok, and uh, and and it's become a much much more prolific platform, uh, people sharing everything from true how-to information to, you know, kind of silly, mindless entertainment, but we'll see. Yeah. All right, sir. You've got a lot of other great articles about a lot of other things. So what else would you like to hit? Well, let's talk Apple for a couple minutes. Um, I think that's a good thing. Maybe that could be our last big topic for the night. So a couple of big things have happened in the last last couple of days. Apple's released a new 27-inch iMac with 10th generation Intel processors. And uh, there is a, a lot of speculation around the iMac because it's said to be one of the earliest platforms that they will release the new Apple Silicon ARM-based chips uh, in 2021. So uh, it looks like a great update. My understanding is the Intel chips they put into the new iMac are screaming fast. And I also shared an article from Macworld that basically says it's silly to wait around for the Apple silicone-based iMacs, that you are good to go to buy an iMac now. Uh, you'll understanding, and, and Apple knows this too, people hang on to Apple equipment for a long, long, long time. In fact, my now seven-year-old iMac uh, is still sitting on my desk at work, and I use it pretty frequently in addition to my Chromebox. It's a great platform. I enjoy using it. But the, the bottom line is, is that there really is no risk at doing that. So I just thought I'd mention that as a public service. But I, I couldn't find the article. There were some YouTube videos about this. I think it was yesterday, but I, I only found one article referring to it. There was some leaked rumors and regarding Apple Silicon Macs. And apparently, and I thought this was super interesting. They're going to have different form factors uh, size-wise on the new MacBooks with Apple-based chips. But one of the rumored platforms is a 12-and-a-half-inch Mac. So kind of like your smaller, the, the tiny, thin Mac that you were carrying around, Wes. But it's going to have an ARM-based chip in it. Um, it's going to have either 16, I mean, 16 or 8 gigabytes of RAM, and the fact that it starts at 8, I think, is really great news. And there were several leaks that suggested that the starting price would be $799. And if they can pull that off, that is a huge coup. And with 15 to 20 hours of battery life, right? Absolutely. That's an extremely attractive package at eight hundred dollars. My daughter, <laughs> were you well, just like you said, we we use our Macs for a long, long time. So yep. her MacBook Air is probably a twenty eleven maybe model. I don't know. It's it's an old one, um, and she was just talking about that as far as how thin that was. My girls just loved, you know, when I had that that really light one, and that wasn't great for video editing, of course, and the other things, but. Man, it could basically do everything on the web that I needed, and it was it was thinner than an iPad. So that's and and the price point is something big with Apple that they've had difficulty with. And if they could do that, um, that would actually make it even maybe more challenging thinking about one to one, whether or not you we 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 didn't want to just go with laptop instead of instead of iPad. But that's exciting. Yep. 
And I could also imagine, too, like a, a MacBook Pro. I mean, I would imagine they may even rename or utilize new form factors, but uh, maybe thirteen or $1,400 Pro version that has 16 gigabytes of RAM to start, uh, uh, 512 gigs of uh, SSD storage, uh, you know, with a nice high-quality monitor, uh, and that, you know, 15, 20-hour battery life. That, that, that seems like an extremely compelling package. Folks, I want to point out to you, if you are not noticing, that, that Dr. Neifer is gushing over the Apple devices. I think he may be thinking, ladies and gentlemen, about the allure of the watch. So, but let's also remember that Jason is probably, I mean, certainly for me, the person who has more screens at his disposal than, than anyone. So we're not going to expect you, Jason, to go single platform on us, but this is yeah. a lot of Apple love that is not necessarily, you know, coming from that side of the, of the screen every, every week. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it, but these are, it's exciting, right? I mean, this, yeah. I love competition. I love to, to hear about, um, you know, the more affordable options and more capable options and a 20 hour battery. What a dream, right? We were only getting to eight hour batteries. It seems like a few years ago when that was like, yes, we don't have to maybe worry about kids charging their devices. If they, if they bring a fully, that was a fully charged, well, Chromebook, but I guess the, the you know, Macs have gotten better too. So yay, yeah. battery technology. And then one other article, this is from nine to five Mac today. And Apple has re- has reported its uh, quarter two performance, and apparently this is the biggest increase in iPad sales uh, in the last six years, highest growth rate in iPad sales in the last six years. And I have not had a, I mean, I, we have an iPad in the home. It's a, uh, it's iPad Mini two, um, so that's a, a what six seven year old iPad. It's funny because about a year ago I, I had reset it and to my account my wife had used it on and off and I said, man, this thing is really slow. It shouldn't be this slow. And then I realized it was a six year old iPad, so maybe I should you know let it go a little bit. But um, it was still in perfectly great shape and had been through uh, travel and all sorts of, of interesting bits. But the point I'm making is that. Uh, the, the iPad is always really the narrative in, in, in Apple media land has been that iPad sales have dropped off. I always attune that to it, it, partly because so many people hang on to iPads for so long, right? Uh, it also, as the phones get bigger, carrying a third device in your backpack, a third electronic device in your backpack, I guess four if you're including the watch, you know, it's just not that necessary if you have a big screen phone, I think. But uh, I, I would say part of this has to be COVID, I would assume, both for educational purposes and also people looking for distraction as they are quarantining in their home, that the iPad was of some use to them. I also have to say, and Wes, I'm almost scared to say this out loud in order to perpetuate the conspiracy that I'm going back to Apple stuff, but the iPad Pro, the 10-inch, 12-inch iPad Pro with the keyboard and now the mouse availability, very interesting developments um, for those platforms. Absolutely. Well, we carried over some articles from last week, but I don't even know if we got through half of them. So we want to remind everybody that you can go to edtechsr.com slash links and see all the articles that we did not have an opportunity to talk about in the show. Is there anything else we should hit before Geeks of the Week, Jason? Uh, looking here, I think I've got oh one one really quick one. Uh, YouTube is announcing that it's getting rid of community captions, uh, which is a feature that allowed people that that knew multiple languages to contribute captions to a a YouTube creator. And I know a lot of uh, kind of uh, you know one or two person shop educational video shops use that to to to. It, to internationalize their videos. And um, I think that's a little sad. Um, my understanding is that it was a little prone to abuse. I did watch a, a video over the weekend I wasn't able to find again. I really need to, to start bookmarking videos when I see them on YouTube, saying that it was prone to abuse for whatever reason. So that certainly uh, could be part of, of that. But uh, I, they said it wasn't being used very often. I see that to be a nice novel feature that, that takes YouTube beyond a video platform and really just make it a social media platform, but YouTube has announced they are ending that functionality. Very good. All right. Well, 
Shall we uh, geek of the weekend? Yeah, I've got a really quick one. Um, I uh, have been looking at, I do a pretty regular look at openly licensed uh, curriculum materials. It's something that's becoming of increased importance as money gets tight in my day job organization. And I came across the Oregon State University open site. It's open.oregonstate.education. And they do share a lot of wonderful textbooks there. Very few of them were very applicable to my you know high school program um but I did find a wonderful, absolutely wonderful edition of Romeo and Juliet that was edited, I'm assuming, by a professor of literature. And the reason why I like this is because it's not only a, you know, it, it, Romeo and Juliet, not copyrighted long, 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 long time ago. It was written, so no copyright has ever applied to this document. At least modern copyright has applied to this document. So you can find three versions of Romeo and Juliet in, in hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of places on the internet. But this one both contains uh, some pretty solid uh, uh, materials, including a glossary, a list of main characters, introduction. Um, it also looks wonderful on any size screen. And so as an example of this, if you are teaching Romeo and Juliet this fall, freshman English is a standard uh, uh, place for that in Montana English language arts classes. And you have to go remote Consider looking, like, if you're going to use an, an Internet-based text, you do a little examining to find out which one may be the most applicable to the students in your classes. In this case, this looks great on a phone. It looks great on a tablet. It looks great on my desktop computer. And it's really, really wonderfully wonderfully done. So again, open.oregonstate.education. They have tons of college textbooks there, but I noticed this text, which is, again, definitely something that's typical in high schools. And I'd point out this is published with Pressbooks, which is a plugin for WordPress, which I have uh, been working on a couple book projects in Pressbooks. And that's what uh, Mike Caulfield uh, uses for his web literacy uh, framework. And yeah, a fantastic platform. And I've been actually reading a um, a book called You Are Here, which is about our polluted information landscape. And it was published. Well, I, it was actually published on a on a different uh, eat pub pub, but similar and really interesting to see that that talk about the maturity of the web and HTML5. Yes, Kindle and eBooks are fantastic, but how cool to be able to have books like that, especially open source ones that that we can study that work great on any device and they're a hundred percent free as long as you have the connectivity. By the way, little footnote there. Okay, well, I am uh, oversharing for Geek of the Week. I'll try to go fast. Um, I did a webinar at our school today called Live Teaching Tools. I used WooClap, woohoo, which I learned about at the Mountain Moot, and it's fantastic. Uh, Pear Deck, Nearpod, there's all kinds of tools out there that cost money. They want like $150 a year, and I'm not a, completely an expert, of course, on all of these tools, but WooClap has really great features for being able to make interactive polls and multiple choice questions and ratings and all this stuff. And you can just flip right between your Google slide presentation and WooClap. Awesome. Uh, so I've got that link to our live teaching tools. That's on our instructional support site that I uh, put together this past spring spring when we went remote and I'm continuing to build that. Um, also a link to WooClap, which they describe as quote, an interactive platform that makes learning awesome. Uh, and especially for remote learning, but also I'm gonna be using it since all of our students will have devices this year, uh, I'll be using that for bell ringers and other kinds of interactive in-class activities that we'll be doing with students. Um, there is, uh, I thought we had done this one as a geek of the week, but I guess not doodle. If you don't know about doodle, it is a fantastic uh, tool that you can pay for, but, but I've just used the free version for a long time. When you're meeting with folks outside your organization, especially when you're in different time zones, you need to find times to meet. Uh, absolutely great tool uh, called Doodle. And then the last one is called Mm-hmm. And shout out to my friend Dean Mance up in Kansas. This is in a private beta and you can request it, but it really looks like a fantastic tool for jazzing up your uh, video presentations that you're going to be doing with the ways in which you put, you know, media behind you and, and, and zoom around your own image and mix stuff up and uh, just make it a lot fancier. So those are some 
pretty good tools and tips to check out because I know we have some other early, some folks who are early adapter innovators that are out there listening to the EdTech Situation Room. So if you use any of those tools, let us know. And uh, if you've got any other suggestions, um, Peggy's saying is WooClap free. Yes, for K-12, 100% free. Uh, they charge for um, the university college level. And so that is the thing when you compare you know, ev all tools basically went free this spring when we had the, you know, emergency remote learning uh, era, but now they're not and folks are having to pay and you're needing to decide. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be paying for great software. We should, uh, but let's take a look at what's available. And the fact that WooClap is free for K-12 is an excellent thing. Great. Thanks. Well, Wes, where can people find you when you're not chit-chatting with me? Well, I am W Fryer on Twitter, and I am continuing to build my curriculum, which will be getting a lot of updates this next, uh, you know, couple weeks as we gear up into school. And that website is mdtech.cassidy.org, and I'll also be teaching Spanish, so there'll be some fifth grade Spanish lessons there as well. How about you, Jason? Where are you sharing online? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. It's been an invaluable resource for me lately watching the ebbs and flows of K-12 education. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. But the EdTech Situation Room is a once-week podcast. We broadcast on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. We'd love it if you can join us live and, and hang out with Peggy George in our chat room. Uh, we broadcast over Facebook. We broadcast over YouTube. You can see us on Twitter. We announce links there at EdTechSR. You could also go to our website, EdTechSR.com. Go to EdTechSR.com slash links to see everything we talked about, plus a lot of links that we didn't get to in any given week. You can download the podcast anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated or download a copy on the website. We appreciate you joining us tonight, but the final word goes to Dr. Fryer. Well, uh, here's the live teaching tool link, and especially Peggy, who is a guru of these sorts of things, and you are as well, Jason. If you have a chance to, to glance at that, uh, let me know if there's some, you know, significant tools, um, you know, Socrative, awesome. Poll Everywhere. There's there's a lot of different quizzing and tools that we can use when we teach live and would love to include things that may be missing. Great. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time on the Tech Situation Room. We wish you uh, uh, good health and a safe and savvy week. Good night. Adios.